Dr. Richard C. Halverson served as pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. for 23 years before leaving that post to become chaplain of the United States Senate. He was the featured speaker at the 1982 Dallas Theological Seminary Founders Banquet in Dallas, Texas, and brought a message on the theme of the banquet, By His Grace. By grace are you saved. Now, if that be true, and God said it, then there is no theme that deserves or demands greater attention in the scriptures than that. By grace are you saved. Interestingly, ironically perhaps, in now 40 years as a pastor, I've discovered that grace is probably the hardest thing uh, believers have to really understand, to really comprehend, to really accept. How often have you, in your own experience, when there was a need of some kind, it could have been a physical need, whatever, you have wanted to pray about it, but you've remembered a failure or a sin, and you really didn't feel that you were qualified to pray because you hadn't somehow atoned in some way for that sin. How easy it is for us not to believe that the blood of Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. But apparently, believing in grace was a problem in the apostolic church. Paul's letters, especially Romans, Galatians, Colossians, and Corinthians, indicate that those primitive followers of Christ found it difficult to accept grace in the fullness of its meaning. Indeed, this has been a common problem to the human race from the very beginning. But this is not surprising, because this is precisely the point of Satan's attack in the Garden of Eden. All our first parents had to do to retain their perfection was to believe God. All they had to do to retain the image of God in the fullness of its glory, its perfection, was to believe God. If they had believed him, they would have obeyed him, obviously. To believe is to obey, not to obey whatever we profess to believe is not to believe. Believing is doing. 
as it was, they believed Satan and did what he said. They accepted the lie and followed through on its implications. And that temptation was determinative for the whole human race to the end of time. In effect, that original temptation was against grace. Our first parents had had nothing whatsoever to do with the life they enjoyed. It was a gift of God by his creative power. They had had nothing whatsoever to do with the perfection. That was a gift of God. They were created in his image. Satan, the subtlest of God's creatures, managed to divert them from simple faith in God's word. First, the challenge. Has God said? Just putting a question in the mind. Is this really God's word? Has God really spoken? Can you believe this is God's word? He doesn't have to make a big noise about it. Just plant the question. That was the challenge. Has God said? Then came the contradiction after our first mother answered. Yes, God has spoken and told him what God had said. Then the contradiction. You will not die. God had said you will die. Satan said you will not die. She had to decide who to believe. Couldn't believe both. And incredibly, in our first parents' perfection, they chose the lie instead of the truth. They decided to believe Satan instead of God. Then comes the coercion, and oh, how subtle. God knows. As though God was withholding something from them that Satan would give them. As though God didn't want them to have what Satan was going to offer. As though God had created in imperfection and Satan was going to complete the creation. God knows that if you eat that fruit, you will be like God, knowing good from evil.
the suggestion that they were not perfect in God's image. That he had not created them that way. That there was left something for them to do in order to be like God. An almost irresistible temptation, and this is secular humanism at its source. Do this to be godlike. Man believing in his own perfectibility by his own efforts, individually and collectively. Here was Satan's strategy, you see, making them vulnerable to sin by appealing to godlikeness. Now here's a key to understanding grace. Every effort, every effort we make to be like God alienates us from God. That was the devil's master strategy. That was his original temptation, and he's never been original since. My determination to keep God's law militates against my relationship with God. If you'll do this, you'll be like God. That is the temptation against grace. It, has, it is a master strategy that has kept, that has been successful in keeping millions out of the church and defeating millions in the church. Now because of original sin, it is difficult for us to take grace seriously. Difficult for us to believe that we are really forgiven, not on the basis of anything we have done, but on the basis of the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross, and that alone. It is difficult for us to believe that there is nothing we can do to earn or deserve God's favor. Now you know that's true. Listen, there is nothing one can do to make God love him more than he does. And there is nothing one can do to make God love him less than he does. Every person in this room knows, by definition, grace is unmerited favor. God gives us, does for us, that which we do not deserve, of which we are not worthy. It is the consummate expression of his agape, his unconditional, 
unalterable, undiminished, unending love. Let me give you four couplets, four contrasts, four transactions, or bluntly, four trade-offs which portray the limitless, dimensionless grace of God by which we are saved. First, death for life. Our death, his life. Our death traded for his life. Paul begins his second chapter of Ephesians with those familiar words, You who were dead, has he made alive? The fundamental problem in human history is not good versus evil. The fundamental problem in human history is death versus life. Herbert Spencer, many years ago, defined life as correspondence with one's environment. To be physically dead is to be unresponsive to material reality, to be out of touch, to be disconnected from it. To be spiritually dead is to be out of touch with spiritual reality, to be disconnected from God or alienated from God. Obviously, to be dead is to be helpless. One who is dead needs only one thing, life. And there's nothing the dead one can do to generate life. If you can't give a cadaver life, then let it rest in peace. Jesus Christ not only has life, he is life. In the prologue to his gospel, John wrote, in him was life. He said in his last discourse to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Life is not something Christ gives as an abstract reality. He is life, and he is our life. The one who is life entered history to give that life for the sake of sinners. He was born to die, to take our death upon himself in order that we might have his life. He took our death and gave us his life. That's grace. Sin for righteousness. Paul writing to the Corinthians, second epistle, chapter 5, verse 21. He hath made him who knew no sin, sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God 
in him. This is the normal human condition. Man is by nature a sinner. He is not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he is a sinner. He was born that way because of that original transaction in the Garden of Eden. There is only one remedy in history for this condition. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. No other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. The sinless, holy Son of God took upon himself our sin and its penalty in return for which he gives us his perfection. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He bore our sins to death. and gives us, in exchange, his righteousness. That's grace. Our poverty for his riches. Paul writes again to the Corinthians, second epistle. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. He who owns everything because he made it in the first place, sacrificed it all for us in order that we might have his infinite, inexhaustible riches. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Philippians. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, he th did not think equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself and was born in fashion as a man, and being found a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. From the inconceivable glory of heaven to the ignominy of crucifixion like a common criminal. He let go of everything took our poverty upon him in exchange for which he gives us his riches. That's grace. Weakness for strength. Our weakness, 
his strength. Again, in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, Lest I be exalted above measure, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And then he repeats, Lest I be exalted above measure. Three times I prayed that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. Something better than having a thorn in the flesh removed. That's having the thorn in the flesh with grace. This concludes side one. Stop the tape, turn the cassette over, and continue Dr. Halverson's message on side two. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Weakness is not a liability, it's an asset. In our culture, it's a liability. And one of the tragedies to me of the infection of evangelicalism by our culture is that even in evangelism, we have to polish and perfect methods so we can approach the sinner in strength we don't ever dare to approach in weakness. Paul is pathological here by our culture. Most gladly, therefore, he wrote, Will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me? Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit said that, I will glory in my infirmities. Why? In order that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He goes on, therefore, this guy is crazy, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Why? Now hear this. Because when I am weak, then when I'm weak, I am strong. That's the word of God. Jesus said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Yet he took upon himself our human weakness. Exposing himself to all of the exigencies and vicissitudes of human weakness, except sin. Submitting to the humiliation the ignominy of the contradiction of sinners against himself. He took upon himself our weakness and he gives us his strength. That's grace. Now these four contrasts are the key to the walk of faith, to the pilgrimage in Christ.
death for life. Listen to what Paul writes. In the fourth chapter of his second letter to the Corinthians, turns out to be a pretty good epistle, doesn't it? Paul writes, For it is God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always bearing in the body the dying of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us and life in you. If anyone will come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. I've discovered in 40 years of the pastorate there are lots of people on the cross, but they won't die there. Lots of crosses. They almost praise them or take credit for them or boast in them, but no death. Sin for righteousness. At the end of the fifth chapter of Romans, Paul makes a transition to what he's going to write in 6, 7, and 8. And I want to read that transition from verse 18. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased or abounded all the more for a purpose, a divine purpose, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is not just a passive covering of sin. Grace is the power of new life, the power of righteousness. That's why the devil hates it. Now what Paul is saying in those verses is preparing us for what he's going to talk about in chapter 6. Don't you know that you have been crucified with Christ and risen with Christ, dead with Christ and alive with Christ? Don't you know this? Well, reckon on this. This is a fact about you. 
that you must know. And he's aiming to what he's going to say in chapter 8 when he writes, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free, has uh, liberated me from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So that the grace of God reigning in our hearts could be do, produce the righteousness which the law requires. The flesh could never do it. In the end of Romans 5, you have the prospect, the reign of grace rather than the reign of sin. The reign of grace to righteousness rather than the reign of sin to death. In Romans 8, 1 through 4, you have the product of that reign. In chapter 6, the principle by which this process works. In chapter 7, you have the process. That's the way you get from Romans 6 to 8. For years, I wanted Romans 7 to be before 6. I wanted 8 to come right after 6. And I really had a trouble with that. And then uh, in seminary, I was assigned the subject to write a paper on the problem with Romans 7. Well, I knew so little about the Bible that I had to go to the professor, finally admit I didn't know there was a problem with Romans 7. But he, he explained it to me, and so I went to work in that library and worked very hard to write that paper. And the more I worked on that, the more I wanted seven to be before six. And it wasn't until years later I was writing a book about Romans that suddenly I saw it. The only way you can get from six into eight the only way you can experience the reign of grace to righteousness instead of the reign of death to sin, the only way you can experience being dead with Christ and risen with Christ is to walk through Romans 7. You know, it takes an experienced person who's walked with Christ a long time to say what Paul said at the end of Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's a very mature spiritual statement. And we have to come to that before we learn to really let grace reign. Because we keep thinking maybe we can do better tomorrow. Poverty for riches. I want to read a familiar passage from Revelation 3. For the past year, this passage has just burdened my heart. 
the angel to the church at Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and increased with goods and need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich and white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and chasten, so be zealous. And you know what the next word is? Know what it is? Repent. A lukewarm church needs to repent. Now here is the symptom of the lukewarm church. I am rich and increased with goods. No problem with that. But it's the next statement. I need nothing. Imagine a church that equates physical or material wealth with needing nothing. I'm deeply concerned about this. We evangelicals have never had it so good. Born again is news. Evangelicalism has tremendous visibility and recognition all over America. Parachurch groups are big business. We have our television celebrities and they're broadcasting the word to millions of people. Big churches with big budgets and big memberships. And that has become the symbol of success in evangelicalism. A big building, a big budget, and a big congregation. You've made it if you've got that. Evangelical books make the bestseller list year after year. And finally, in 1980, evangelicals began to feel their political muscle. We have never had it so good. What do we need? What do we need? We need to repent. You may have heard the story of the cardinal who was with the Pope when the passage from the Gospels was read concerning Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And the man lame from birth at the gate asking alms. And Peter said, silver and gold, have we none but such as we have, we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the cardinal said to the Pope, well, the church can't say that anymore, can it? And the Pope said, what can't the church say? The cardinal said, the Pope can't say anymore, silver and gold, have we none? And the Pope said, no, we can't say that anymore. Neither can we say in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk.
Here is the tragedy of evangelicalism in the last quarter of the 20th century. Lukewarmness, rich, increased with goods, needing nothing. And God says, You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. And then comes that incredible invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Sisters and brothers in Christ, there are an awful lot of doors in our hearts that need to be opened to Jesus Christ today. Weakness for strength. Listen again to Paul as he writes to the Corinthians. This doesn't sound very much like successful evangelical Christianity today. For consider your call, brethren, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, not think, not bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God has made our wisdom, our redemption, our sanctification, and our righteousness. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. This is the mighty apostle, author of more than half of the New Testament, speaking here. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith might, faith might rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Oh, how we need to be weak so that we may have his strength today.